0: Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank
1: member FDIC.
0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
1: Hey, welcome to the Blonde Files podcast. I'm your host, Arielle Laurie, and I'm here to talk all things wellness. From how to achieve optimal health and well-being to the best beauty tips and everything in between, no topic is off limits. I know there is so much information out there, so I'm here to help you navigate it all and live your best life. Thanks for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I always say this, but I mean it. I have such a good episode for you today, an episode that I had so much fun recording. I had so many questions, For my guest, I am talking to Dr. Jen Mann. She is a licensed psychotherapist. She's an author and host of VH1's Couples Therapy. We discuss all things relationships, including when to stay and when to leave a relationship. We talk about the number one reason why men and women cheat. We also talk about daddy issues, and I ask her if I have daddy issues. (laughs) We talk about the roles parents play in our adult relationships. And with relationships comes sex, of course. So we chat about what makes for good sex, misconceptions of men, and scheduled sex. So, a little bit about Dr. Jen. Of course, I mentioned she is a psychotherapist. She is best known as the host and therapist for VH1's longstanding hit shows, Couples Therapy with Dr. Jen and Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. She has appeared as a guest expert on hundreds of other shows, including The Today Show, The Early Show, Dr. Oz, Wendy Williams, The Doctors, The Maury Show, Steve Harvey, Access Hollywood, The Insider, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. She has has a weekly column in InStyle magazine called Hump Day with Dr. Jen, where she gives sex and relationship advice. And Dr. Jen is the author of many best-selling advice books, including The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy, which we talk about today. Also, Super Baby 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years, and the A to Z Guide to Raising Happy, Confident Kids, which have collectively spent five weeks on the bestseller list. So this is a fun, super informative episode, whether you're in a relationship or single or somewhere in between. So I hope you guys enjoy. Okay. Welcome, Dr. Mann. I'm so excited to talk to you.
0: Excited to be here.
1: So before we get into everything, can you just give a little bit of your background to the audience and like introduce them on who you are and what you do?
0: Okay. I am a licensed psychotherapist. Most people know me from the show VH1 Couples Therapy, which has gone for six seasons, or the spin-off show VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. I also have a weekly column in InStyle Magazine called Hump Day with Dr. Jen that's all about sex and relationships. A lot of people know me from my five-year show on SiriusXM called The Dr. Jen Show. And then there's some people who know me from my books. I've written a few parenting books, and the most recent book is a relationship book called The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy.
1: Amazing. And I want to talk all about that book. But to start off, I don't know if this is just my perception from my friends, family, myself included, but it seems like relationships and dating now more than ever are kind of fucked up. I don't know if that's (laughs) your experience, your professional experience. (laughs)
0: Look, I, I think that COVID has thrown a wrench in a lot of relationships. There were a lot of people who were quarantined with partners that there were cracks in the relationship. And that was the thing that either put them over the edge where they then broke up or it highlighted such horrific differences and created even more stress in the relationship because usually when we have issues in our relationship, we can go out for a drive, we can go to our favorite restaurant, we can hang out with our girlfriends, we can go get our nails done and all of that was taken away in 2020. And as a result, there were a lot of couples who were in small Places for way too much time, and the tension built. And a lot of people said things they shouldn't have said, did things they shouldn't have done. And so, there are a lot of couples who are dealing with the repercussions of that. And then, there are also a lot of people who were dealing with dating during that, which was very complicated. The one positive trend that I have seen in dating since then has been that there's a lot more of just honesty very early on in a relationship. A lot of people feel like there's just not enough time, life is too short. Too many people have seen have lost loved ones, have seen people get sick, so there's a sense of our mortality that has made people get a lot more honest about what are you looking for in a relationship? Are you looking for a fun time? Are you looking for marriage, a serious relationship? What are your politics? Like people are talking about things on a first date that they weren't talking about 3 years ago.
1: I feel like that same perspective kind of applies to marriage, though, where people are like, you know what? Life is short. I'm out. Goodbye. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: I've seen a lot of that in the last two years.
1: A Mm -hmm. lot. How do you think like online dating is affecting just kind of modern dating in general now? Because I I've been married for I don't even three and a half years, together for like six or seven. So it's been a while when I was dating. Before I got married, I was, I had just dabbled a little bit in like Bumble, and but it wasn't what it is now. Now I see some of my single friends and it's like, seems like an absolute nightmare. So how have you seen that affecting dating?
0: Well, I think it's good
1: and bad. On one hand, it creates a sense of
0: abundance that, okay, you know what? If things didn't work out with that person, great. Swipe right and you have new opportunities. So there is a little bit of a kid in the candy store mentality of, wow, there's such an abundance of single people. On the other hand, that abundance of single people sometimes makes people say, well, you know what? They blinked the wrong way. So you know what? I'm just going to swipe left and move on. One date where maybe something came up that maybe 10 years ago, people would have talked through and it would have been interesting conversation, but now people are a little more disposable because of that. So a lot of the time people kind of don't stick around quite as long because there's a sense of, well, there are more opportunities on my app. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you think that people should go on dates with people if they're not attracted to them? No. Okay.
0: (laughs) A baseline attraction. I, I don't think you have to feel like I need to rip this person's clothes off immediately. I think sometimes that can be a sign of kind of some toxic old stuff from your childhood. Like if you're too hot for someone too quick, then that's a red flag too. But you can't go out with someone that you feel no attraction to. There's got to be kind of a baseline. Hmm. I can imagine myself kissing this person. Like, mm-hmm is kind of the bare minimum.
1: It's interesting because I've seen different people say different things and I've seen some people say, no, you should absolutely give somebody a chance, which I didn't really understand. So that's why I was curious what your take was on that. But there are a couple of things that I want to kind of dive into. One thing that you mentioned was that like maybe being too attracted to somebody is a red flag. How so?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I remember that season four of couples therapy Sarah Abraham was on the show and she was became single during the course of the show. And one of the exercises that we did with her was we had her go online and go on a dating app and pick some people and, and go on a date with them. And I'll never forget, the first person she picked was this, don't get me wrong, super hot guy, six pack abs, no shirt on, selfie in the locker room, holding up and flexing. And I can understand why she was hot for him. But he was clearly a narcissist Mm -hmm. who was looking for, you know, some quick action. And when we see someone who is posing like that or who replicates some other bad habits of ours from our dating history, Mm -hmm. it's saying, okay, what's going on? This is a red flag. And don't get me wrong. Look, I think people should be hot for the people they date, the people they marry, the people they are with. But I also think that I've seen all too many people who choose the looks and get seduced by the looks and don't go for the qualities under it and get themselves in a lot of trouble.
1: Got it. Okay. But you can still have a connection with somebody and be super... And that's not red flaggy. It's just if it's the thing that's initially attracting you. Okay.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't be hotter for my partner, Eric. Like, Don't get me wrong. Like, I could jump his huh? boat any moment. But at the same time, you also want to really look at if you have a history of just going for looks and just mm-hmm. your horniness lead and your desire and your passion then you may sometimes be not screening well enough.
1: I see. So how do you maintain that passion for your partner? How long have you guys been together? Almost eight years. Okay. Yeah. Give me spill. We need the <laughs> we need <laughs> <a> secret here. <laughs> Especially during COVID. That's impressive.
0: Yeah. You know, look, I have a whole chapter in my book all about sex. And, you know, I gotta practice what I preach. And mm-hmm. Very important that couples don't get complacent about their sex life. And that's the easiest problem to have that we tend to, especially once you have kids, we all have busy lives. If you've got a career nowadays, you're available on your phone for most people around the clock. There aren't a lot of boundaries that we have a lot of demands on us. So it's very easy to let things go. It's very easy to get complacent to turn on the TV instead of go into the bedroom and have some time together. It's very easy to not tend to the relationship. And one of the things that's most important, and and interestingly, there's a guy named M. Gary Newman who did a study about couples who cheat. And he looked at 500 men who cheated and 500 women who cheated. And what he found was that surprisingly, with 93% of the men and 92% of the women, the reason why they cheat, the number one reason was a combination of a lack of emotional connection and a lack of sexual connection. And what that speaks to is that most people say, oh, whoever cheats, they're just looking for sex. But really the emotional connection is key. Having that bond really is great for your sex life. And it's also great for the connection and it's, it's the best inoculation you can have against cheating.
1: Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about that on another interview. And I thought that was so interesting because I think that people just kind of assume like men cheat for sex and women cheat for the emotional thing. But I feel like the emotional thing precedes sex yep. in most cases. It, it really does.
0: And, you know, I always say there's always someone who, you know, it has perkier boobs or a bigger... Mm-hmm ass. But like if you have put in the time and the energy into your relationship, you or your partner are far less likely to cheat because you have a bond that can't be created in an instant. And you and your partner will be far more likely to be protective of that bond.
1: Another one of my favorite wellness habits that I incorporated into my routine starting last year that has made such a difference is adding electrolytes to my drinks throughout the day, which is actually something that my nutritionist recommended years ago. But when he recommended doing it, it was just with sea salt and I just could not stomach that. So I've been using Element, which is a delicious electrolyte drink, and it makes it really easy and actually enjoyable to get my electrolytes in. It makes such a big difference in how I feel. It really helps With workout recovery, and it really helps with how my body retains water, which is always an issue for me. So many of us who eat whole food, unprocessed diets are actually not getting enough sodium, and not replacing the sodium can negatively impact health and performance. And that's where Element comes in. So Element has lots of salt with no sugar, none of the junk, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. And it's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited no matter what lifestyle or diet you follow. It also contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, which is 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And their flavors are amazing. They have watermelon salt, citrus salt orange salt those are my favorite they also have like mango chili raspberry grapefruit they also have unflavored if that's not your jam. And it's really something that I crave, particularly after a workout. So if you guys want to try Element, they are so sure that you will love their product and come back for more that they're offering you a free Element sample pack. That's eight single serving packets for free. All you have to do is cover the cost of shipping, which is $5 for U.S. customers. You can get yours at drinkelement.com slash Blonde That's D R. I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Blonde Files. And this deal is not available on their regular website, so make sure you go to that URL. Again, it's drinkelement.com slash Blonde Files. They also offer a no questions asked refund. So you can try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You have nothing to lose. Again, drinkelement.com slash Blonde Files. Let's talk about bloating for a minute. One of the most common questions that I get over on social media is, how did I stop bloating? Do I still bloat? If so, what do I do? The answer is yes, I still do occasionally, especially recently as, which I've talked about in other episodes recently, I started incorporating a lot more foods that I used to try to avoid like gluten, dairy, and a couple other things. And I did have a little bit of a reaction to that. Not so much that it deterred me from continuing to pursue eating those foods, but just from my body not being used to it after not having them for so long. So luckily I do have a remedy that really works for me. And I know it works for a lot of you guys too. And of course I'm talking about Array. I absolutely love their bloat capsules. They were actually designed to give people food freedom so that you can enjoy the foods that you love without any discomfort or bloating after. They are targeted products. They were formulated with a naturopathic doctor. They're 100% natural, filler-free, and organic, and they're also super effective. So they work in under an hour so you actually feel the results. I like to take them before I know I'm going to have a heavy meal or immediately after I have a heavy meal or something that I don't normally eat, and it really helps to optimize digestion. It just has five herbs and a fruit-based digestive enzyme in it. It's completely laxative-free. There's no uncomfortable side effects, and it works. So if you want to try Array, you can go to Array.com and use the code BLONDEFILES at checkout for 10% off a one-time purchase or 25% off the first month on subscription. Again, that's Array.com, A-R-R-A-E.com, and the code is BLONDEFILES. Well, hello, I'm Katie Maloney, and you probably know me from a little
0: show called Banner Bomber Rolls. I've been labeled all kinds of things, a bitch, a bully, and a mean girl. But there is so much more to a person than what you see on TV. Tune in every Friday as I talk to some of my friends and
1: castmates, celebrities, comedians, medical professionals, and maybe some political figures.
0: And by the time we're done, you're going to love me.
1: If people are feeling like, you know, they're they're in a relationship, whether they're married or it's just, you know, they've been together for a certain amount of time and they're not feeling that connection and they're trying and it's still not working, what are some signs that somebody should leave a relationship? Because I think, you know, like we talked about in the beginning, a lot of people have been evaluating that after having so much time together and having, you know, probably a lot of areas of their relationship illuminated that they were able to distract themselves from before
0: in my book, The Relationship Fix, I talk about exactly this as well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes think, oh, it's just about fixing the relationship, but sometimes it's about figuring out when to leave. And one of the things that I talk about is that if you are with someone who has an addiction and is unwilling to address it, if you're with someone who is abusive, you, you cannot stay. If you are with someone who has a mental illness, and won't get help. And and understand, the, and won't get help is the important part. Because you can be with someone who is an alcoholic and is working a great 12-step program. And I think those are some of the best people to be with because they are working through their shit. That's right? me. <laughs> yeah. but I love people who are in program because- mm-hmm such a wonderful structure that requires people to be accountable and responsible. And I just absolutely love that. But if you have someone who's in the throes of addiction and yeah. is refusing to get help, is refusing to get well, then forget about it. You can't have a relationship because their primary relationship is with the substance that they have the addiction to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been sober for eight years. My husband has been sober for like 23 or 24 years. And I always wonder, I mean, not that we are not without problems, like, but I always wonder how normal people can function in relationships when they're not regularly looking at their shit.
0: Yeah. No, they, well, and the truth is most of them can't Mm -hmm. because what happens is it comes up and bites you in the ass because the more stuff you you sweep under the rug the more pressure exists in the relationship and eventually something explodes
1: Mm -hmm. is there a time though if people are in a relationship and they feel like they're not sure like whether they should stay or leave what are some signs to stay if there are any
0: Well, first of all, I think that in order to leave a relationship, especially a long-term relationship, and even more so if there are children involved, you need to know that you have done everything humanly possible to try to save that relationship. And again, the caveat is if it's a situation where there's abuse and your safety is in jeopardy, that's a whole other category. Mm -hmm. But regular conflicts that couples have where there's not a safety issue... You want to make sure that you've done therapy. You want to make sure that you've tried couples therapy, that you've done some self examination, that you've been willing to look at what is your part in the problem. Because it's very easy to look at the other person and point fingers and say, well, you did this, and you're the villain, and I'm the hero, and I'm the victim. But one of the things we learn in psychology school is that with couples, typically, There's a 50 50 dance that we do where we trigger each other or we push each other or we hurt each other and we react to each other. And we have to look at our part in it. And I remember when I first started touring with my book, one of the first questions I got from someone was Will this book help my relationship if my partner doesn't read it? And my answer to that is yes, because we are in a system, we are wound and bound together. And anytime you do something in your relationship and you change the way you communicate, you change the way you react, you change the way you speak, it has a ripple effect and it affects your partner. And sometimes we can be so inspiring in our relationship that we inspire our partner to do better as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's truth to like, you should give what you want to receive in a relationship?
0: I think that a lot of the time people give what they want to receive and they miss the mark because we to give, we shouldn't be giving what we want to receive. We should be giving what our partner wants to receive.
1: Interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. to me, may not be meaningful to Eric when it comes to love. You know, a lot of people talk about love languages and kind of Mm -hmm. knowing your love language. But I think the bottom line is really knowing what is meaningful to your partner so that what you give lands and is effective. Because sometimes when you say, well, I took out the trash. Well, I swept the floor. Well, I made the bed. Well, I ran this errand and I had your dinner ready. And if that's meaningless to that other person, then you're barking up the wrong tree and you've wasted energy and now you're resentful. Whereas if that person, what's meaningful to them is like, well, you didn't come in the door and give me a hug and say hello and ask me about my day well then you've you've wasted energy you're resentful they're not fulfilled and you have a problem in your relationship
1: i'm laughing because that's me like my way of show, <laughs> my way of showing people like my love or affection is yeah. i love to cook for them and like make a meal and i get so much joy out of like serving someone and i do that for my husband and then he's like unhappy and i'm like hello excuse yeah. me and he could not care Less about that.
0: (laughs) What is it that he loves? What makes him feel loved and connected with you and tended to?
1: He wants me to be interested in him. Like not like I mean, curious, interested in his day, interested in his work. He wants to be adored. Like I feel like it's so funny. Like back to the sex thing. We think that men just want like sex and like and that's part of it. But I feel like they also just want, at least in my experience, they also just want to be a little bit like adored and like a little revered.
0: A hundred percent. And, and I, I think that you, you are right on the money that we have a lot of misconceptions about men and sex and that especially men in long-term relationships, I'm always amazed at the men who come into my therapy practice that they consistently, they want connection. Like you're saying, they want to be adored. They want to be cared about more than anything.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. Something that you mentioned earlier about, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but like that a lot of our relationships and how we act in relationships and who we choose goes back to our childhoods. And this is something I really wanna get into with you. I married somebody twice my age, so I'm always wondering if I have a daddy issue.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna call them all about daddy issues.
1: (laughs) All right, let's talk about it.
0: And, and look, you may very well. I mean, what is <laughs> uh, what is your relationship with your dad
1: like? My relationship with my dad is great. You know, I have explored this and I've talked about this on the podcast before. Like when I started dating my husband, I was in therapy at the time and I was like, oh, what is this? Like what's playing out? I think now I have a better perspective on it than I did back then. And and now I don't think that it was so much like a thing with my dad. I think that I was just kind of like fulfilling unmet needs from my childhood kind of, yeah, through my relationship with my dad and my mom though.
0: Oh, what were the unmet needs? You don't mind me.
1: Um, I think that it was just kind of like emotional security, like different needs for security. And yeah, and and like I said, like both with my mom and with my dad, like stability and, st- and security. Even though I had a great childhood, I didn't have any trauma and there were no like very apparent issues. But for whatever reason, I felt these things.
0: But one of the things that I talk about in my book and chapter four of my book is all about childhood trauma. And I start out the chapter by saying that most of the time people think if I wasn't abused, molested, neglected, that I had no trauma. Mm-hmm. But the trauma is a small T instead of a capital T. So mm-hmm. is that maybe we had a parent who did not understand us. Maybe we had a parent who was so busy working and they had to work that they weren't emotionally present for us. Sometimes we have a parent who was a workaholic or compulsive with food or some other addiction that is less obvious to most people that kept kind of a a distance between us and uh, prevented them from meeting our emotional needs. And sometimes we just had a parent who wasn't able to reflect back to us what we were feeling, where we were at, or maybe our emotions weren't okay in in the household. So a lot of the time where that kind of experience, where that rupture is in our history is much more subtle and it takes a little more exploring to figure it out in order for us to heal from it.
1: What are some of those ways or what would some of those relationships look like played out in adulthood?
0: Here's an example. Let's say you have a parent who just didn't get you, that they didn't understand you and, you know, understand that Parents are our first mirrors back to ourselves. So we look to our parent to know if we are lovable, if we are wonderful. And when a parent isn't able to mirror back to us early on, especially those first three years are particularly critical, but really throughout our entire childhood, when a parent is like, what's wrong with you? Why do you like that? Or, you know, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do the debate team. You should be playing soccer or whatever it is that we repeatedly get the message that's subtle of your choices aren't okay. You're not okay. What you want is not okay. What happens is we internalize that. And on some level we think, oh, I must not be lovable. I must not be okay. Then we tend to pick someone who has similar issues that maybe they don't accept us the way we are in some significant way that maybe they're constantly trying to change us. Maybe they, you pick someone who is in fashion and is always telling you that they hate what you're wearing. It could be something as subtle as that. But what happens is the unconscious mind doesn't know the difference between past, present, and future. And it's always trying to heal the old wounds in current time. So we tend to pick a partner who will injure us in the same way that our parents injured us because that little girl inside of us goes, well, If I can make this person accept me, if I can make them love me, then that means mom or dad were wrong and I really am lovable and I'm okay. And we're trying to heal that old wound. But what happens is we pick that person who doesn't accept these things about us and then we get triggered and we get wounded. And typically it doesn't work out well because we're not able to change them in order for them to accept us. And then we end up getting re-triggered instead
1: so counterintuitive because you would think that we would look for somebody who would heal whatever that wound was instead of looking for somebody who's going to re-injure it so that then we can prove something to our younger self. I mean, it's like so convoluted.
0: But it's so typical. And, and you know, there are also typically traits that are positive from our parents that we pick in that, that person because our unconscious is kind of always looking for that familiar, you know, it's mm-hmm. always. In the old, the bionic man or the bionic woman, when they were scanning the room and you hear the computer going, doo, 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 like I, our unconscious does that, looking for similarity, something that feels familiar and
1: safe. I mean, people might find this creepy, but there are so many times over the course of my relationship where I've been like, oh my God, I married my dad. Or like, oh my God, I married my mom. Like just with the little kind of nuanced things where I'm like, "Ah."
0: Oh yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, Eric and I laugh about it all the time. He's such a combination of my mom and my dad in so many ways. And we do tend to like, in my book, I talk about what they call a MAGO therapy. That's kind of this basis that we do tend to pick people like our parents. And if you make a list of all of your mom's good and bad traits, all of your dad's good and bad traits, and then you make a list of your partner's good or bad traits, you're going to see an enormous overlap. And it always surprises people when they actually do that exercise.
1: You probably know by now that I have a few non-negotiables in my life routine, especially my morning routine. I tend to be super consistent with that, and it just sets me up for a really good day. And one of those non-negotiables is getting my green drink in with Athletic Greens. I've been doing this daily since last year, and it's one of those micro habits that really affects a lot of different areas of my life. Really positively. So with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens AG1, you are absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And this blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery focus and yes, aging, all of the things. And I just mix it with about eight ounces of water and a couple ice cubes, and I drink it on an empty stomach before I have my matcha, before I do my workout, and it just gives me like a little buzz of energy. I also really love the flavor, and I just feel like I'm covering all my bases and eliminating the need to take a bunch of different supplements. So Athletic Greens is also lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It also contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And this is important because a lot of green juices that you can buy out there in the market are actually really high in sugar and it's just a small micro habit that you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. So, right now Athletic Greens is going to give you a free 1-year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/blondefiles. Again, that's athleticgreens.com/blondefiles to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You guys may have heard me share that I became somewhat of a nervous flyer over the past couple of years. I never used to have an issue with it. And then I had kind of a panic attack on a flight in 2020. And ever since then, it's been a little bit of a problem. I have done some therapy around it and I do have some tools. One of those is CBD. And I have to say that when I flew back from New York last week, I took some of my NED CBD de-stress blend and I was chillin. It was almost kind of funny to me how relaxed I felt. And I think some of that obviously is the work that I've done. And then I attribute the rest of that to the de-stress blend because it is so, so effective. And not just in a moment like that, it's so helpful every day to just help alleviate some of that tension and anxiety that I think so many of us feel particularly right now. So I know that the CBD market is super saturated and it's so, so important that when choosing a CBD or anything that you're going to ingest for that matter, you get the absolute highest quality and NED is just that. They are USDA certified organic. So all of NED's full spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer in Colorado. And the products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. So as I said, the De-Stress Blend is incredible. It has been in development for over a year. It's a one-to-one formula of CBD and CBG. So CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. Thank It also has ashwagandha in it, which is an amazing Ayurvedic adaptogen that enhances your body's resilience to stress. And it has cardamom and cinnamon. So cinnamon is a powerful prebiotic that supports your gut health, which is of course a key player in your mental health. And cardamom combats stress by helping reduce your blood pressure and cortisol levels. They also have other products that I love. The sleep oil is amazing. The full spectrum hemp oil is incredible. I love their magnesium, which is called Mellow, which does not have CBD, but it's amazing to take at the end of the day. It really helps you kind of relax and ease into sleep and help with muscle recovery and all of that good stuff. And one of the best things about Ned is that they are super transparent. They share third-party lab reports, who farms their products and their extraction process all there on the website. So you can go check that out. And if you would like to give Ned a try, you guys can get 15% off NED products with the code blonde, B-L-O-N-D-E. You can visit helloned.com slash blonde to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash blonde to get 15% off NED's incredible products. What are some ways that people can work on themselves and try to heal some of these wounds so that they can either be a better partner in their relationship that they're currently in or so that they can, you know, for lack of a better term, have a better picker when they're choosing somebody to be in a relationship with?
0: I recommend that everybody do one year of weekly therapy, that even Mm -hmm. if you have trauma that I think that that is a really important baseline to have in order to self-reflect, in order to develop tools, in order to have someone who will call you out on your shit. Because a lot of the time we, oh, well, I have great friends. They call me out, but they've got skin in the game. They, they've got their own agenda. Oh, you know, I don't want you to date him because when you date him, you know, I, I'm not going to have as much time with you. And sometimes it's unconscious. Sometimes it's not even conscious or like, oh, I don't want you to change because if you do, then you're not going to want to go drinking with me or whatever it is. So I really recommend therapy. And sometimes people say, well, I can't afford therapy. But what most people don't realize is that In order for a therapist to become licensed, they have to do 3,000 hours under supervision, which they can't get paid for. So there are mental health clinics all around this country. And now also you can do teletherapy that allow you to do therapy based on your ability to pay. And not only do you get your therapist, but you get the eyeballs of their supervisor who has at least two years of experience. So that's really the number one way. I also really recommend, I'm a big fan of bibliotherapy. It's part of the reason why I write books, because not everyone can come into my office. And I tried to write a book with the relationship fix that would be like a year of intensive therapy with me, where people are forced to self-examine and to really look at a lot of the questions I would be asking them in my office. And also now you have a lot of access to great information, masterclass, YouTube, people's Instagram, you know, TikTok, all that sort of stuff that is important to kind of help us to look at issues that are important to us. But I do think that therapy is still number one.
1: Do you think that most, if not all couples could benefit from couples therapy or do you think it's just kind of a case by case basis?
0: Absolutely. I I recommend that most couples or actually all couples have at least six months of weekly therapy at some point in the relationship, just to have, it's kind of like going to the doctor and like getting a checkup to have someone who's able to say like, Hey, you know what? I'm noticing these patterns. And before they get too significant or harmful in the relationship, I want to bring this to your attention or here are some tools that I don't think you guys have right now that I think would be really helpful for you. And, and that can make a really big difference in the outcome of a relationship.
1: Okay, so we've gone over a couple of the tools from your book, Relationship Fix. Let's go over a few of the other ones just to give like the listeners a basic breakdown.
0: Okay. You know, one other thing that when you ask a question about sex, like what is a good tool for couples? I created something that's called the Sexual Inventory. And I created this for couples. I recommend the couples do this once a year. It's in the back of my book, The Relationship Fix. And what it is, is a very brave questionnaire for couples to do together. And it's pretty long. And you take turns where one person asks the other one, all the questions, and then it's reverse. And what I did was I started it off very approachable, like like What kind of makeup do you like on me? What kind of clothes do you like on me? How do you like my hair? To other questions that are much more sex specific. Because also you want to know what turns your partner on. And sometimes we have ideas of what will turn our partner on. And it turns out we're completely wrong. We project Mm -hmm. it. And then I get into specific sexual acts. Do you like this? Do you not like this? Is there anything you would change? But then I get into kind of the more scary stuff of like, what is something that you have never told your partner that interests you that you like to talk about or do in bed to like even more like some kinky stuff like, Hey, would you like to try this? Would you like to try that? So a lot of the time couples find it really valuable because it's scarier to ask a question yourself and be like, Hey, would you like to do this? But if you're going through a questionnaire, well, hey, that crazy bitch therapist made me ask this question. Like, uh, she's pretty kinky. And you're she's... falling on the
1: sword. <laughs> exactly.
0: <Yeah. laughs> but it does, it makes it easier for couples to talk about this stuff because they don't have to be responsible for asking the question. I'm essentially asking the question for them.
1: I love that. Question about sex. I did an episode with Shan Boodram back in December. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Um, but we were taught, it's all about sex. And I'm curious what your take on this is, but if people are newly in a relationship and the sex is like terrible, do you think they should still pursue that relationship? I think that
0: they should first try to fix the sex because a lot of the time sex is terrible because people aren't communicating well. And even Mm -hmm. people who think they're good sexual communicators are oftentimes not. Mm -hmm. But the things I've learned being a therapist for, almost three decades that sometimes people say, well, yeah, you know, I say more to the right, more to the left, or I like this, or I like that. But a lot of the, the, a lot of the time people don't give all the information or sometimes they fake it. And then they expect the person to still know how to get them off Mm -hmm. when they've been it. So the other person is operating under false information (laughs) and you never, you can't, Help your partner sexually. You can't be a good lover if you don't really know what is getting your partner off. So I think you first have to really examine where are things going wrong, what have we done to try to fix it, what am I scared to talk about that I haven't talked about and I probably need to.
1: Mm-hmm. And then back to the inventory. If say that a couple does this and they're completely not aligned on things, then where where do they end up?
0: the inventory is so vast and covers so many categories that I've never encountered a couple that didn't find anything where they were, were both interested, you know, oh, yeah. like sure, there are always times where someone's like, Hey, I want to do a threesome. The other person's like, no fucking way. Or <laughs> like, Hey, you know, I'd like you to tie me up. And the person's like, well, I don't know, but you know, there's a lot of kind of negotiation that can be done. And even the couple that where one person says, I want to do a three-way and the other says, fuck no. That couple, you know what? You can use it in fantasy. You can watch about it. You can use it in different ways. But once you know what their fantasy is, you can use it in bed in other ways.
1: There's probably no like universal answer for this or maybe there is, I don't know. But how much sex is considered quote unquote healthy or quote unquote normal in a relationship?
0: You know, there have been a lot of studies done on it. And some of the studies, the numbers have always surprised me. I think this last study that I had read about it said something, it was like the average couple that's happy with their sex life has sex like 1.3 times or something in a week. But besides the fact that it seemed a little low to me, but I think that the couple who does not have a high libido and has five kids who are under the age of 10, they're probably not going to do that. The newlywed couple is probably going to exceed that. The, like, I think that it really, what matters is that both couples are satisfied and typically no couple, I've, I, I've, I don't think I can think of in 30 years, one couple that I've ever worked with where a hundred percent of the time they both have the same libido, want sex at the same time of day in the same month. Like, that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So sex is a bit of a negotiation. And most people don't like to think of it that way because it's supposed to come naturally. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to not be something you have to talk about. If you want to have a good sex like you have to talk about it. And you also mm-hmm. have to compromise and you have to find a way to do it without resentment.
1: I know people who have been in long-term relationships who are like, we schedule sex. Like, It's not sexy, but like we do it. And then... We're, we're still having that time to connect. What do you think about that?
0: I love couples scheduling sex. <laughs> and and I, and I don't understand why couples think it's not sexy because you bet your ass when you were first dating, you were scheduling sex. Yeah. You say, okay, we're going on a date. At eight o'clock on Saturday, I'm getting a bikini wax. I'm getting my nails done. I am prepared for sex. So why wouldn't you do that in your marriage or your long-term relationship? It's no different. And if you don't schedule it, you're probably not gonna have time for it. And you're probably gonna, instead of going into the bedroom, you're gonna turn on the TV.
1: That's so funny. I never thought about it that way. I'm kind of all over the place here, but since we're on the topic of sex, I'm thinking about a thing that I saw on your Instagram, which said, Something along the lines of like being in a relationship with someone that you should have fucked once. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like there are probably a lot of people listening who are like, ooh, I can yeah. relate to that. So can you tell us what that's all about?
0: Look, I think that there are a lot of people who had great sex and got seduced by the great sex. And kind of like we were talking about earlier, that they were so hot to the person that they didn't screen well for the emotional components that they need in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes we're so overtaken by our lust, by the oxytocin that gets released when we have sex that makes us bond, by the serotonin that our brains release that make us happy, that we start to think that this person that we've had great sex with is a great life partner, when in fact they were great and bad, not necessarily a great partner.
1: Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Okay. So what are a couple of the other tools?
0: Well, you know, one of my favorite tools for couples that I think is really one of the most valuable tools is timeout. And most people think of timeout for kids. I actually hate them for kids. I do not like timeouts for kids, but that's a whole other parenting issue. Mm -hmm. But I love them for adults because what typically happens in a relationship, especially a relationship where you have people who have been in it for a while, their guards are down. Sometimes we get a little sloppy where we sometimes are unaware of our triggers is that we tend to trigger each other. And like we talked about earlier, we also tend to pick people who have a lot of the same traits as our parents. So they tend to injure us in the same way that our parents injured us, which means that we are not just responding to them, but we're responding to a history of pain. And so what I like couples to do is to think about their anger on a scale from zero to 10. Zero being like nothing, I'm fine, I'm peaceful, all is good. 10 being you're like in a violent crazed state. And to think about what is your point of no return? What is your point where you say things you shouldn't say, where you lose control, where you do things that you you shouldn't do, where you regret things that come out of your mouth? So let's say your point of no return is an eight. What you want to do is when you hit a six, you want to take a timeout. And what you want to do as a couple is in advance to say, hey, we're going to try this tool. Let's practice doing a timeout. If we get too upset or too angry or too volatile, let's plan to take a timeout. One of the key things, well, a few key things with a timeout is one is that it's not just something to shut down the conversation. You have to then say when you're going to speak about it again, because otherwise it just feels like the person's being abandoned. So you and I are fighting and I say, hey, I need a timeout. I'm too upset. I can tell I'm too emotional for, for us to have a productive conversation. Let's meet back in the kitchen in two hours. I think that I need about two hours to calm down and then you meet back in the kitchen and if I'm not calm down, then I can say, you know what I think I need to sleep on it. Let's talk in the morning. But having that end date is really important that that's crucial.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you practice what you preach. I mean, I'm sure that so much of this comes from experience. So, if you're willing to share, like what are the whether this was in the book or not, but what have you learned from both your practice and dealing with so many people and also in your own relationship, which sounds like it's a fulfilling, successful relationship at this time, what have been the the most impactful things that you've done or seen? Uh,
0: well, I'll give you one little tip that has to do with timeouts that I learned from personally. Because okay. <laughs> um, Eric and I use timeouts, we use them a lot. We are both very intense, very passionate people who have very strong opinions. And when things get heated, we use timeouts. We now have been using them for you know about eight years. But in the beginning, one of us will call a timeout, and the key is when you call a timeout, both of you need to stop talking about the issue and like go to your separate corners. But I've found myself going, well, wait, one more thing. You can't do the one more thing or okay. You go into the other timeout and then start texting the person be like, but this other thing you can't do that. Like a timeout has to be clean, no texting, no emails, no phone calls, no carrier pigeons, like nothing. Like you got, really let it breathe. Otherwise it's not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk in the book about a lot of different experiences with Eric. He, he always jokes with me about how he's, he's like my white tiger that like, I give all these examples of him. He's, he's a very, very brave, secure man. God bless him to be with a relationship therapist. You know, one of the things when we were dating in the first year, it's kind of the end of the first year, he had this incredible car. He had this beautiful California Ferrari that he used to drive around in. And I had all these amazing memories in it. And we were going on a trip. And he parked the car in front of my house. And at the time I was on a very busy street and I said, oh, you know, we should probably put it in the garage because there are constantly people like having car accidents on this street. And so I went to open the garage and the garage was sticking and it wasn't working and I couldn't get it open. So I was like, you know what? Well, we're gonna have someone fix it and move your car in. I forgot. (laughs) We are on our trip. I get a call from my neighbor who says, I have some really bad news. Eric's car is totaled. Someone smashed into his parked car. In front of your house, there are pieces of the car like all over the street. And she sends me a picture. It's like, oh my God. Like, God. Like, I found this amazing, wonderful man and I love him and he loves me. And now I, like, I'm the most responsible person. Like, I never, like, I have to-do lists. Like, to-do lists are, like, in my blood. They're my favorite thing. And somehow this slipped off of my to-do list. And I'm, I thought, like, he's going to think I'm really irresponsible. He, like, this is going to cost me the relationship. He handled it so beautifully. It was shocking to me that he was like, you know what? it's just a car. I've got insurance. I know you meant to do it. You're like, this is not like you to to not take care of it. And he was so forgiving that to me, it was really, it was a masterclass in forgiveness.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard you talk about forgiveness. When do you think, I mean, is there a time, I'm sure there is, is there a time in a relationship where you kind of just have to like choose forgiveness instead of, I, I keep thinking of this thing in recovery, actually, that I hear a lot, which is like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Yeah. Like, is there both or what do you think about that?
0: When it comes to forgiveness, I always look for four things. Because typically what happens is we are in a culture that is very forgiveness oriented. I think there's a lot of pressure to forgive, that it is kind of it's forgiveness is beautiful and don't hold on to it. But I think that forgiveness must be earned. I think it's healthy to let go of anger, but I don't think that you always have to forgive in the traditional sense of forgiveness. In order for something to, to be forgiven, I always look for these four things. One, the, the first is remorse. I call it the four R's. And remorse is when someone is able to give you a truly heartfelt apology that shows that they regret what they did, that they feel bad about it. The second is responsibility, that they are willing to take responsibility for their actions. Because if someone doesn't do that, then nothing's going to change. You don't get that kind of repair without that. And and it's crucial for, for the forgiveness. The other thing that I look for is recognition. And that is the recognition that I understand why this bothers you so much, the willingness, and this is the, a tough one because people get very self-righteous about this, the willingness to actually sit through the other person saying why this bothered me, how this hurt me. And typically, a lot of the time people time out on this, like, and I don't mean good timeout, like I was talking about, but in the bad timeout of like, you know what? I've listened to you talk about that affair that I've had for a year now and I'm done. If you're still listening, then it means that it hasn't landed in the way your partner needs to hear it for them to heal.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Important you keep listening and you may need the help of a therapist to help you figure out what your partner needs in order to let go and forgive. And then the fourth is remedy. This is, key. This is so important. And remedy is actually creating a plan of action to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I hear this all the time, like with my radio show, I would get people who would call in and say, and you know, it's such a a typical example. Well, my partner cheated on me and he came back to me and was crying and said he was sorry. So I forgave him. And I think he's cheating again. Like I don't understand, like, why is this happening? And I always say, well, when that happened, what was the plan to make sure that it didn't happen again? What was was he going to do to give him insight to address the underlying issues and also to make you feel safe in the relationship? And typically he answered, well, nothing. He cried, he apologized. So I thought we were okay. I thought he really meant it. He can really mean it, but if he hasn't addressed the underlying issue, well, then nothing's going to change.
1: Well, I could keep going for so many questions. But to close, I always like to ask my guests, what is one thing we should or could, I know some people don't like the word should, stop doing today in our relationships or in our lives, whatever, and one thing to start doing?
0: I think what we should stop doing is have our nose in our phones all the time. We need more eye contact in our relationships. And I always recommend that couples have at least... 20 to 30 minutes a day of face-to-face eye contact where they're not looking at their phones, where they're not looking at their screens, where they're actually spending time together. So that would be the, what we don't do. And I guess it's also what you do do. (laughs) 30 minutes of of face-to-face time is really important.
1: Love that. Well, this is amazing. Where can everybody find more information on you and find your book and all of that?
0: You can find me on my website at drgen.com, spelled out D O C T O R J E N N.com, or on all social media, especially Instagram at drjenman. two ends on gen, two ends on man.
1: We'll link everything so that it's easy in show notes. And thank you so much for coming on.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun.
1: Yeah.